Hi, and welcome to the Days of Learning podcast. I'm your host, David Nelson, and I'm so thrilled to have my good friend, Deborah Nevels. Deborah, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, David. It's truly my pleasure. Now, for those of you who are local, you'll know Deborah Neville's name because she has, she gets around in many circles. But currently, uh, we have her at the medical college in the freighter system. So Deborah Neville's is currently the program manager for community outreach and engagement for freighter in the medical college in Wisconsin. But you also may know her from her work at the American Cancer Society. Deborah, I'm so glad you're on our team. I was always on your team. I was oh, always on you, your team. Oh, you know. <laughs> but really, you're, you're with, you have been on our team because we both thrive in the community engagement space. But it's so yeah. good to have you at the medical college now. How long have you been here? Since December of 2019. Um, I started uh, just before Christmas thinking I could get like all the onboarding and new employee stuff done beforehand. And I started on a Monday, and by that Friday, um, I had several appointments already on my books because people found out I was there. So I was like, "Oh, I gotta realize, I gotta figure out how to use my phone." But it's it's been fun. It's been you know we've been hit and um, with this season of COVID, as I call it. Uh, so I started in December, and then in March, on March 18th, I can never forget. Um, we were told that we were working remote which is a whole new shape and whole new phase, a phase of innovation and opportunity um, in working remotely, doing community outreach and engagement remotely. So it's, it's different. It didn't stop us though. We are going to get to some of that, but uh, let me ask you this question though. Did you ever learn to use your phone? And I'm going to guess the answer is no. <laughs> no, I kind of, <laughs> I know if it rings, how to pick it up, but yeah. Um, it, there's not a lot, it, the messages somehow get to my inbox, and I'm just fascinated by that. So other people know how to work it, and that's what matters. They still get to me. Okay. <laughs> well, you know, I hope that after a year's time that that, that will continue, uh, because I know you're always on the go. Whenever I try to track you down, it's like Timmy said, I saw her here, or I saw her there. It's like I am not surprised a bit that she doesn't know how to use her phone at the office. But Deborah, before you're at, you at the medical college, and we've always been on the same team, let me be clear about that. Um, you work for yeah. the American Cancer Society. How long yeah. did you work there and in what capacity? I was there for seven years. I was, oh gosh, I was um, health systems manager working with hospitals and the medical college in Freighter, one of my accounts. Um, and so that's why I was like, I was always on your team because I was always connecting you to resources at the American Cancer Society and also getting materials out, um, doing fundraising, uh, got to know a lot of the researchers that were funded by ACS. Um, and so I was there for seven years, first as healthcare manager, and then I was the manager of health systems for the state of Wisconsin um, for about two years, I believe. Um, but both roles, I got to, I got to keep the medical college is one of my accounts in Freighter. So I maintain that relationship the whole entire time. But I was there for a total of seven years. Well, it always seemed like you were on the team because you were always here, always doing such good work. And if you had yes. stayed there, I suspect that you would have been um, a community engagement manager of, of the country or something. I don't know. You, just, you were just... <laughs> That's Wisconsin scary. is a pretty big state for cancer, and uh, I know that you were constantly on the go, but we get ahead of ourselves because you and I often do that, though. 
I want to back up a little bit, and I love. I always love asking these questions to my guests. But Deborah, start anywhere you want, and, and tell us about your journey to this point today. I know that I was always destined for healthcare. Um, to start my journey, as some would be fearful, I start when I was very little, fell in love with my pediatrician, Dr. Gorenstein, and always thought I want to be Dr. Gorenstein. He was so cool. Um, and uh, he, all, I told him what I wanted to be, that I wanted to be a doctor, and he was like, and you're going to be. And so um, that was when I first got bit by, you know, medical, wanted to go in the medical field. I ended up, um, I'm a graduate, very proud graduate of Nicolet High School. Uh, and uh, while there, I did a lot of work trying to be pre-med, getting prepared for it. Ended up going to the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee. Um, where my mother was there finishing up her, let me see, when we started, she gra I graduated from high school and she graduated from college with her bachelor's degree um, in psychology. And then I started at UWM and she was starting her master's degree in psychology in psychotherapy. And um, we did take a couple of classes together there, which was my demise often. She was hilarious. I love Evelyn Davis. That was my mom. and. Um, she is my shero forever and always. She's no longer with us physically, but she's always with me. Um, she reminds me of that all the time that she's always with me. But um, ended up giving my okay, okay, degree. okay. I got, I got to stop you. <laughs> you, you went to college with your mother. Yeah. Tell yeah. us, tell us about that. No, really, tell us about that. Well, my mom, I have to tell you, this is why I am who I am today. My mother had only gone to the eighth grade. Um, she decided when we were in middle school, it had to be junior high or high school, um, that she wanted to go back to school. And she was one who always listened to people. She um, was so cool. And she uh, went back to school, got, got her, um, I think it was her HSED, and then went on mm -hmm. to college at UWM. Uh, she also was in the Department of Africology. She took a lot of classes there, too. I think that was her minor, actually. Uh, and then when I wanted to go to school, I had gotten accepted to Howard University, um, but it just wasn't in the cards of where I needed to be. And so my mom was like, you know, UWM is right here. You can stay in the dorm. Um, and my parents live in Milwaukee. That's usually, you know, well, you can stay at home and go to school. It was like, no, you can stay in the dorm. And I actually mm -hmm. worked during the summer. She helped me work and helped me save my money so I could pay myself for mm -hmm. staying in the dorms, which I will tell you cost under $800 for the semester, which is, yeah. <laughs> it was, that was not a lot. But I, I tell you, we took a couple of classes together, African-American literature, I can remember. I think there was another one in African-American law, which was, um, was fun. And People on campus knew, I would know, find out my mom was on campus because my friends would say, oh, I had lunch with your mom today. We had lunch with your mom. And I'm like, what? <laughs> I didn't even see her. When did she get on campus? So this is pre-cell phone. And so you, you just, your friends would tell yeah. you that it would be the uh, teleperson, tell Deborah, it was, a, it was the word of mouth network, which you know is so big in, in, in the black community. Oh. Yeah, yeah, totally storytelling. And, oh, your mom told us about the time, and I was like, um, don't, I don't want to know what she told you. I don't want to know. But yeah, I don't want to know. But yeah, she was on campus and would actually bring me food sometimes. And she had night classes. I would come run downstairs from Sandberg Halls and um, 
come downstairs and grab food from her as she was going to class and or meet her on campus and, and stuff like that. But I will tell you, I was used to UWM because I also, my sister and I, would go to class with her sometimes when, when um, she was doing her undergrad. And we would sit in the back of a classroom and, you know, take notes of stuff and, and do our own homework, but also, you know, listen in and get in on the conversation, which was really cool. So I was part of UWM, did not realize that that's mm. what put it in my system for a very long time. But um, my mom and dad, my father was an educator. He worked for Milwaukee Public Schools. Um, and so education was in my, in, has always been in my blood. But my mom, having her on campus made it, for me, it made it, uh, it, it felt like I was always at home. Mm. Um, it never felt odd. I never felt uh, lonely. I knew that even though sometimes I wouldn't see her, um, having friends that would see her on campus, having friend, having my friends who wouldn't even ask me for lunch, but were making sure that they had their appointment to see Ms. Evelyn. I was just like, I, okay, that's I'm not taking it personally. Um, but even being in class together and, um, writing papers and we would ch exchange each other's papers and read and edit each other's papers and stuff. Oh it was a lot of fun. It was fun. It, it sounds was, like, it you was more like you were more like best friends than you were mother daughter. Oh, she was my best friend, but she was my best friend, but she was not my playmate. She made that very clear. I get it. I get it. I'm your mother, not your playmate. So I never stepped out of that role. <laughs> yes, ma'am. But I, I want to ask you in all seriousness, you talked about your mom being your hero, and um, why? What What about your mom that really made you look up to her as a role model? My mother, um, I did not know until I think I was finishing college, or yeah, finishing college. My mother um, suffered from depression and she was also bipolar mm -hmm. in a manic sense and was very well medicated, um, followed the regimen that she needed to so that we never, my, my sister and I did not know how bad her depression was. Um, and it stemmed from abuse that she went through as a child. Uh, and, um, but she was a rock. I mean, when I tell you, I never knew that she um, was sick or that, that she had, you know, suffered from, from this sure. disease. I, I never knew because it, it just never impacted what she did. My mom, we didn't necessarily celebrate Halloween, for example, but we had fall parties where she would take leaves from the yard, drove my dad crazy, put it in the basement create a haunted house room in our spare bedroom in the basement, have the witches, witches punch. And just, I, she would dress up and do the whole thing. And I was like, I thought we didn't celebrate. She's like, no, it's a fall party. I'm like, okay, whatever. But she was the strength. She was my rock. She, um, everything that she was able to do, knowing the fight that she had just to get up every day, um, made it even stronger. I mean, made my, my love for her and my appreciation for her. I mean, I love and idolized her when I was growing up. But then when she passed and I found out how sick she really was, um, I was like, oh, and then I got to ask my father. I was just like, so mama was, and she was like, yeah, she, he, she suffered, but she never wanted you all to know. 
because she ne- it never impacted you all at all. Um, she she was she was she just did so much and was so strong. And one day when I grow up, I ha- hope to be half as strong as she is. But she, I will tell you the thing: I have no regrets about um, our relationships. We constantly, my family was one where we constantly told each other we loved you, we love each other. Um, we constantly talked. Uh, I need, and the the big bigger piece of this, which is a big part of the story, my mother, um, because of abuse that she went through as a child, could not have children. So my sister and I are both adopted. Okay. Um, she adopted me when I was three months old, and my sister when when I was four. My sister was three, um, and so the love and openness that she had, but no one in the family better ever question whose child we were. No one in the family ever mentioned that we, because you wouldn't even know we were adopted. I look like my dad. I write like my dad. I talk like my father. Um, my sister looks like my mom. She cooks like my mother does. That did not get to me. But um, just everything, I mean, it just, her ability to open her heart and her home to us um, was like, duh, that's what she would do. Um, the way that she opened her heart and her home to other people. I had foster brothers that I grew up with. We, we had kid brothers um, that she took care of all the time. And um, we were part of the foster care system, which I actually did that for a while um, as a follower in her footsteps. It just, she was just phenomenal. And is the, the symbol to me of when you are able to identify, I have something going on, I need help and then follow the regimen and work closely with your doctor. Um, only after her passing did I find out, because they lived in North Carolina um, when, they, when she passed away, I had opportunities to talk to her doctors and friends and stuff, and they were like, yeah, she, was, she, was, she, was, she had very bad days, but no one knew about them because she could catch them and she knew how to get help for them right away. Mm-hmm. And talking to my dad, I was like, how did you deal? And he was like, I could tell when they were coming and we would work together. Um, and it was just one of those things where like no one ever knew. No one, unless someone caught a moment or um, was privy to see the medication that she was taking, no one, and I, my sister and I never knew, never ever knew, which, I mean, it was, it was a beautiful, she was such a strong and incredible woman. I was, if somebody would have told me that, I'd been like, no, you gotta mix up with somebody else. But, but my father was like, no, she had very bad days, but she, she centered herself. She was a very faithful woman. Um, she and my dad, you know, loved God, knew the meaning of having that higher power and that center in her life. And that really made a difference. But the, the, my mom just, and there's other people, but it's kind of funny. I used to felt, feel so selfish. I was like, no, nah, she's mine. I mean, my friends that knew her was just like, oh, that's your, that's my mama. That's, that was my mama too. You realize that, and I was like, "No, she's on mine." They were like, "No, I'm sorry, she's mine too." <laughs> but it was just, I had to share her, which was so icky. I mean, bad enough I had a sister. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I, I want I want to tell you I love origin stories, and I could listen to this one because I wrote some words down, and I'm going to say this because you and I are both people of faith. Yeah. And you may, uh, you may write like your dad and your sister may look like your mom, but that's the hand of God. 
Oh, so much. That's the hand of God. So much. So much. Yeah. But the words I wrote down, and not only, and the, if this was Miss Evelyn, <laughs> Miss Deborah, this is you. Strength, rock, centered faith. Yeah. You are your mother's daughter as well. <laughs> I only hope and pray every day that I can be as strong as Evelyn Coble Davis was. As she, mm. she was my model of what a woman does. Um, and that, that was, she, she was incredible. She, she still is. I, I mean, she's been gone a while, but she still is for me. because I can feel her every day. I mean, anything I do, I'm just like, uh, okay, mama, I'm up, I'm moving, I'm doing it, I'm making it happen. But thank well, you, you know, for saying I, that. I am, I am a consumer of mental health services. I've been in counseling for years. I am a trauma survivor, and I understand that. I understand depression and anxiety, perhaps even tendencies of, of bipolar. But for you not to know because my mother had depression and you knew when my mom had depression. And so uh, for you not to know does speak to the strength of this woman as well as the strength of her family and probably her husband as well. Yeah. My dad now, is, was, is your father still with us? No, my father passed um, three years after my mom passed. Okay. But he was, He's he's the reason I'm a, okay. Everybody can yell at him. He's the reason I'm a Steelers fan. Sorry, <laughs> love my Pittsburgh Steelers. <laughs> my dad was from Pittsburgh. Got um, it. He was he was a school teacher. He uh, went to he was in he's a, a veteran um, and had gone to uh, got his master's at Marquette uh, University and and um, in counsel education counseling and. Okay. He he was just so he was so cool. He was silly. Um, any silliness it was my dad. Even when he he lived with me after my mom passed away with my girls and my girls, he poured so much history mm. and so much. Um, they understand who Milt Jackson, Thelonious Monk. Um, my dad was a jazz player, so my girls know. They can hear it and go, oh, that's Grandpa. I think that's Thelonious Monk. Isn't it, Mama? Isn't that Milt Jackson? I don't know. I think that's Stanley Turrentine. I mean, he would play jazz, and my girls would sit at his feet and hear and listen to that. And so he really, um, for the years that he lived with me, he lived with me for two years. And for that time period, um, he was such, I mean, it was the both, the two of us together were ridiculous and hilarious. And I always will be a daddy's girl. Um, and it was just, it was just special because I needed that extra time with him to after we both needed that time and needed each other for that healing. Um, and it was just, it was incredible. It was incredible to have that. I was, I felt blessed. You, you know, I, I want to say, Deborah, you are, you are one of those individuals, and you don't hear it often because it's like I'm a mother's daughter, I'm a daddy's daughter, but you are a combination because I'm going to tell, a, I'm not going to tell a story, but you do have a funny, silly side, um, kind of like I have a funny, silly side, and I, I love to laugh, and we can be serious, but man, we like to have fun, and, and I can, if you get that from your father, then man, you got the best of both worlds. Yeah, and my love of music and the Steelers. Can't forget it. 
<laughs> well, I, I know many people from the Pittsburgh area, and there is a there is a rock there is a rockiness, like the soil is rocky there. There's a solidness, and there's a working class ethic that goes with people there. So oh, you wow. graduated with your bachelor's from in African American history from UWM. Yeah. You mm -hmm. then went on to you get your master's degree in healthcare management and did some work on your doctorate. Tell me about this, and I see it from your mom and from your dad, the idea of you, have a, you are an educator and you are a person of strength and so many people with cancer need that person of strength in their lives. Talk to me about your current position as program manager in community outreach engagement for Freighter and the Medical College. Yes, this is such a blessing because it combines all of my love and my passion. Um, working with an incredible team, we are designing, and I love this, they, this, this you're going to love this. Our, the way that we look at reducing the cancer burden, so many people identify their determinants, their social determinants that are impacting the health care. And we feel that that's a very vague statement. I mean, we have a list of what those determinants are, but let's get very specific about why there are determinants. So the way that we are addressing cancer burden is through a restorative justice lens. We are acknowledging that there are injustices within our community that is impacting the health of targeted communities. And there's communities that we are working with that are imp impacted most by cancer burden. Um, those are our black and brown communities, indigenous communities, monolingual communities, and it's not a um, barrier that's, oops, we didn't realize that was going to happen, but there is a classism that goes on that also comes with it, a removal of justice for these communities and for their, the residents of these communities. So we are just drawing a line in the sand and saying no more, um, acknowledging that there are these injustices that are there that are increasing the cancer burden for these communities and identifying ways to support the community voice at the table. What is so important is that oftentimes we as researchers even um, come and say, well, we've done some reading and we know what the peer reviewed articles say and we know what um, has been proven in Chicago and California and Texas and out east. So this is what we're going to do in Milwaukee, as opposed to going into the community and saying, what do you see as being a problem? Just in general, what do you see as being a problem? We've asked that question and people have come back with, we're concerned about employment. We're concerned about um, I, things for our youth to do. We're concerned about disenfranchisement. Um, and we need to be able to answer those. And the thing is, is that, there's a hierarchy of needs that our community has. And I can run in left and right, stand on every corner, do 80 million programs talking about the need for cervical cancer screening, for um, prostate cancer screening, for people getting their colonoscopies, but it does not matter if you don't know where your next meal is coming from. It doesn't matter if you don't feel safe in your, in your neighborhood or in your home. It doesn't matter if you are a single mom stressing with the fact that you have three kids in three different grade levels or three different schools 
who are now all homeschooling. And oh, by the way, you also are working from home and can't figure out how to get this to work. A, friend, a sorority sister of mine told me a story of, of she was going to get her breakfast as usual at Burger King. And when she walked in, she saw one of the workers coming in, but she had two little kids with her. And she walked in and got the kids all set up in the back of the restaurant, um, in the eating area, in the dining area, but had their tablets out, um, had them all set up, all plugged in, and got them something to eat. And then she clocked in for work. She didn't have internet at home. Her boss was kind enough to allow her kids to be there and allow her to work the entire shift so her kids could be in school, get access to the internet, and do their homework and she could make money at the same time. A blessing and a curse at the same time. A blessing because her employer is understanding of that. But at the same time, she, that speaks to what she doesn't have at home. Our job and our, my position allows me to blend the need for cancer screening, but also the need for acknowledgement of the injustices that are within our communities that are creating the barriers that do not allow us to pay attention to our health. That is like my dream job. And I wish I didn't, I will tell you the same thing I used to say when I worked for the American Cancer Society. I would love to get up one morning and I do not have a job because we found a cure for cancer. But this now, my, my, my tagline now has changed. That not only have we found a cure for cancer, but all the injustices have been wiped away. And I no longer have to push for the community voice to be at the table, that we now do it automatically. When we think of our research questions, the question came up because of a conversation with a community member and that we added that person to our research study, to our research team, that we no longer are, that we are supporting research that's being community driven in the purest form because that community is actually formulating the question, implementing the research, and we're supporting it by making sure that it goes into peer-reviewed articles, that it's presented at major conferences, and that the data is, is evaluated so that we can repeat it again. My job seems pretty simple when you say community outreach and engagement manager, but however, we've made it a little harder because we also want to be responsible citizens and good neighbors um, and being able to support our communities best. You, you gave us a lot there. And I want to break Sorry. it down a little bit. No, no, no. I, I was actually very intentional about letting you go because you were speaking a language that is so important to me in conversations that we've had. Yeah. But I'm going to say this to you, Deborah, and it's not going to be a surprise. And, you, and, and I have a sense you're going to agree with me. One, you're always going to have a job. <laughs> yeah. But, but the reason, one, we haven't solved cancer yet. Okay, we're working on that. Yeah. But two, and more importantly for us in this conversation as well, is we don't recognize the inequities that exist between white and black and brown communities. Yes? Yes, yes, yes. So until as a society, and I got into it with somebody recently on, on, uh, on social media around this, that white people are fragile, they hang under their privilege, and they're mm -hmm. unwilling to recognize where there has been, let's call it segregation, mm -hmm. racism, disinvestment. 
And this goes for, and it, and it doesn't leave us immune from the health space or the research space, because if this stuff runs through the water and it's like the two fish are in the water and somebody says, how's the water? And they're like, what's water? <laughs> so people, true. Go, yeah. people still go, what racism? Mm -hmm. That ended. Yeah. So yeah. I got, I got, I, you know, we're still going to have a job, and we're still going to, okay, but one day. <laughs> we talk about that. Yes. <laughs> I want to, I want to break this down though, because you spoke about this idea of injustice and classism. I want you to, and that I love that phrase line in the sand, because we can recognize that there are inequities and there are disparities and there are social determinants. And I, you know, one of the things I love about medical students is they can rattle off the nine social determinants. Yes. <laughs> but they, they have never met the woman with the two children working a shift at Burger King so they can do their schoolwork, which really is, it, it, is a, it is a case study of social determinants, stable housing, yes. good yes. food sources, good education. Yes. 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 How are you framing this in your position, in this easy job that you have? This easy job that I love. So one of the ways that I'm framing it, and, and I'm really excited about this, is that we are part of the Thrive On initiative. And for those who don't know, Thrive On is a, a partnership between the Greater Milwaukee Foundation and the Medical College of Wisconsin. My team and I will be housed in the Thrive On building, which is going to be located on King Drive, for those who are uh, Wisconsinites, it's the old Gim Gimbal building um, on King Drive. And that is a community partnership. Part of us being able to even try to address injustices is that we have got to be in the community. Mm -hmm. Being out on Wisconsin, off of Wisconsin Avenue, out here, you know, Watertown Plank Road, it is, it's beautiful community. Love and appreciate all that we have here. Although now we're working remotely, but still, um, mm -hmm. that's our home base. But having a home base that is embedded in the community means mm -hmm. that, most importantly, we're going to constantly have that community conversation. We're going to be able to hear the community and, most importantly, be able to reach right outside our door and say, can you come in for a conversation? Tell me what is going on. Tell me where I need to be. Tell me how I can support what you are currently doing. Tell me what happened down the street. Just this week alone, we have, there's a community advisory council that's involved with this, and this is how the work gets done. In, um, and it involves Hallier Park, Brewers Hill, and I just forgot the third one. There's three, na three neighborhoods that, that's around the, the building. Um, and there was a shooting, a young lady, the member of our community, many of our community advisory council, they knew her. She was shot and killed. Leaving space during meetings for us to be able to give time for people to process or to talk about their frustrations or to even honor her memory acknowledges that we know that you can't just go on business as usual, that we have to be there to say, okay, this was wrong. Why did this happen? And it doesn't necessarily mean that we're stepping up and trying to resolve it, but it helps 
to be able to to be able to say, well, we want to meet with our, our um, alder person about the violence in our community, and we have someone from the Medical College of Wisconsin that wants to join the conversation. That gets people's attention. Mm-hmm. Um, it's being able to provide that support, that name recognition, but most importantly, to be a partner in this. That young lady's life loss is a loss to everyone. To be able to acknowledge that there's a loss, that there's now a family grieving, um, that what do we do next to help support that family, and to be a responsible neighbor in that response and in that space is important. So part of our role to be able to get this done is to be that important, that, that significant neighbor, that responsible neighbor that doesn't do, unfortunately, we have a reputation of coming in, doing research, and leaving. But instead, we're going to come in, work collaboratively to design and decide what, need, what research needs to be done, and then stay there to be able to disseminate the information, share the information, and implement sustainable programs to be able to respond to the needs of the community. So it's, it's more than just sitting at a table, renovating a building, putting some offices in the building, we have to be committed to being in the building and in that space and in that neighborhood. Um, one of the projects that I'm working on for that neighborhood is with Groundwork MKE. And we've talked a lot to people about since COVID, because that is the top priority for individuals. Since COVID, food insecurity is huge. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of area in, in a lot of um, spots and plots in that neighborhood where we might be able to get community gardens started. Sure. But not only do we do community gardens, we do community gardens with a community health worker who can do some case management around chronic illness. So while you're planting your beans, your greens, your cabbage, your corn or whatever, I also understand that you have high blood pressure, that you have diabetes. Do you have your materials to be able to monitor that? Um, let me tell you what you can plant in this soil at this time frame. Let me tell you not only how, what you can plant in Wisconsin that will grow, but let me show you how you can prepare it for the week so that you can eat it, your kids can eat it, that you're eating what you're growing. And then also most important, living in Wisconsin with only three real growing months, <laughs> um, how do you preserve it? That's part of our partnership. It's not, and what the behind the scenes part that I'm very transparent about is that if you get in that garden, if you eat what's grown in that garden, if you do the family time, if you have the support of of a coordinator to help you weave through your chronic illness, you will reduce your cancer burden because they're all interrelated. Healthy eating, active living, 40% of of cancers can be attributed to being overweight. If we can just exercise, get up and move, not grab the potato chips, but instead grab a pear. That can make a difference in reducing your cancer burden. But if I don't have the food accessible, then I'm, it's not something that I'm going to do. I'm going to do the quick and easy. I'm going to do what I can go to the corner store and buy for a quarter. So being that community member means that I'm also sitting in with the hierarchy of needs of that community and sitting with the community and saying, okay, how do we resolve this? What, what can we do? What do you need? What do you think? What do you think? Because the other piece that we want to do with Groundwork MKE, they do asset mapping. And identifying what the assets are in that community and building upon those assets and letting the rest 
of the world know of these wonderful assets is also what we need to do because there's tons of strengths. There are tons of strengths in these communities. And we've got to build upon those and allow the opportunity, kind of like moving away the bad soil, putting in good soil so it can flourish. Moving away attitudes that say, oh, I don't want to go in that neighborhood. Moving those attitudes away and, and highlighting the Andre Lielis, um, the Dasha Kelly, all of the, the gems that are in that community, which strengthen the community, is what is key. So let me ask you then, I want to ask you two sides of this question. Okay. I, I loved your first example about being in a meeting and recognizing the life that was cut short due to violence. What does that mean to have you do that with the community? And then the other side, how do you express that to people who might be more bent on um, doing the science? Mm -hmm. It's hard because the science is critical and the science is important. I think me or someone else from the medical college acknowledging that that time is needed acknowledges the pain that that community is going through. Yes. You and others have often, I mean, you've come and said, how are you doing? For real. I mean, for real, for real. How are you doing? That makes a big difference to be able to acknowledge that, you know, I'm going through something. You know, that, that you know, just being black in America right now is difficult. Being yes. black female in America right now yes. is, is difficult. Um, and just being able to, just acknowledging that, it's some, it does something, um, I, the only way that I can express it, when people have asked me that authentically, and um, it's, it's a feeding of the soul. Um, yes. it's, a, it's, it's kind of that, okay, you, you've given me space, space to be me. Um, and to acknowledge just for a minute that I'm not okay, but that it's going to be okay because I have allies, I have friends that acknowledge that there's that space, that, that there's that problem. Having, having a meeting and saying, okay, we want to just take a minute because we lost, and I apologize, I cannot recall her name. We lost her this week um, to violence and that it's unnecessary. It's got to stop. We've got to figure out what we need to do and how we need to do things better. And so we want to just give space to honor her, her, her contributions. Even though I may not know what they are, I know that she contributed. But giving space to the pain that that family and the neighbor, neighborhood is feeling right now acknowledges that we know you're going through something and that our meeting and our agenda, we, it'll be there. We, we can get to this. We can figure out how to get through a meeting. But right now, what's most important is what you are going through and what you're feeling. Um, I, there was somebody uh, in the council who I could tell, because I've known her for many years, I could tell something was going on. Um, and she kept going on camera, off camera. And so I reached out after the meeting and I was like, sis, are you okay? And she, she was like, no. And I was like, okay, what do you need? I got a tank full of gas. And I can go where you need me to go. And, and she was like, I just needed that. That's all I needed to know. Sure. She said, that's, that's all. And then sometimes I don't have to do anything. Um, and that's not necessary all the time. It doesn't mean that you have to do something. Sometimes it's just that you have to acknowledge that there's something going on. And she said, I didn't think anybody noticed. And I was like, oh, I, I did. And sure. I, I need you to know I saw it. And I, I need to know 
that if you're not okay, that you're going to call me and know that I got a tank full of gas and I can get to you in 15 minutes. I'm there. I'm, I'm there. So you just tell me what's going on and if you need me. Um, and she was, she truly was just like, that is honestly all I, I just needed acknowledgement that I wasn't in a good space and I needed to know that I was okay not to be in a good space. And I was like, you're totally fine. I just need you to be safe. But just being able to acknowledge and give that space to somebody, it doesn't take a lot, but it means a lot. And to talk to scientists, I mean, and that's, that's what you said, the, the other part of it. Yeah. Science understands, our science is always going to be there. Our science is always going to be there. But that relationship is going to be forever. And that first impression of acknowledging, because now I can go to her and go, okay, I need to ask you a question. I need you to serve on this board. or I need you to serve on this committee. Or I just need you to hear this and tell me what you feel when you hear this. She'll do it because she knows that authentically I'm coming, I can come from the other side of caring about her. But at the same time, I also know to acknowledge her, her expertise and value of that. So we need to be very cognizant as scientists. We need to be very cognizant of the fact that a relationship matters more and that a relationship is what we need to value. Because for many people, all that they have is the ability to build those feelings and those emotions for one another. And that is gold. That is critically important. I don't trust you if I don't have that relationship. Yeah. Has that been well received or have you had some pushback from those? And I know scientists, I mean, and some may call me a scientist <laughs> and I, I can be impatient with the best of them when they want to get to the study design or something. Has, have people gone, no, I don't want to do this. It's funny because I've had to call some folks out on it. And fortunately or unfortunately, people at, at the medical college, they know me. And so they know how I'm going to come. So if I'm like, we need to talk, they are like, what I do? So it's, um, I've had to do that a couple of times. And they're like, I didn't even know. I just thought that that was, and I was like, no, it wasn't. And now I had to clean it up. So let's figure out how we're going to build this relationship. I know you need to, I know you have a time frame. I know that you want to do this. But people, a lot of times, as scientists, we grow up in a different world where it's, it's all about the research and the publication, and we understand the value of the research and the publication. And we think that the relationship comes because, you know, I'm the expert and you can see that I can give you all of this information. But sometimes it's like, I just need you to sit down and hear me and acknowledge that you've heard me and then go, okay, wait, I, what I heard you say was, tell me more about that. Then you've developed that relationship. And I think we just have to do a paradigm shift of how we think because our research can be so much richer. Sure. It can be so rich if we have the community at the forefront of the thought. Um, I worked with one researcher before coming here uh, who did a true um, PCORI model, Patient Center Outreach and Engagement um, uh, Intervention, I think that's what it stands mm -hmm. for, yep. but a PCORI model. And he worked with vets, and he did it over a year. And I will tell you, even me, and when I first came to the meetings, I was like, what are we doing? We're just eating lunch. Okay, we're eating lunch. And I would start having a conversation with some of the vets around the table, and I was like, 
Oh, we're building relationships. For a year, at the end of the year, we had four research questions around lung cancer, four. And I was like, we took a whole year to develop four questions. And I thought about it, and I said, wait a minute. We took a year collaboratively to develop questions that made a difference. Wow. And then when he turned around and told the vets, he was like, by the way, all of you are going to be authors, co-authors on a paper I'm publishing about this. So here's some paperwork I need you to do. And they were like, what? We're going to be published? That's really cool. And they were really proud. So what are we doing next? So are we taking these questions? But they learned. <laughs> yeah, then they, then they went a whole nother. And we were like, okay, slow down, slow down. Um, but yeah, it was fun. After I realized, but not a lot of researchers want to take that year to do that. And that's hard. That is very hard. But it is so worthwhile because now this researcher has this team of vets who are not only going to continue with their interest in the research, but now will tell other vets, oh yeah, that's a good doc, work with him. He'll, he'll, he really listens, he knows. Oh yeah, he had a team of people with him. Yeah, she was good, she was in that room too. All, all of us that were researchers in that room now have credibility because they saw us sit for a year just to develop four research questions. It's hard, it's a lot of work, it's a lot of, as, as a friend of mine called it, it's a lot of skinning and grinning because you have to shake hands and you're just developing those relationships. But being community-based researchers, we know the meeting before the meeting is what really happens. And then the meeting after the meeting is when the work really happens. And those times, those moments to create an entire space for a year that we did that was phenomenal. It was the best learning experience I ever had. And I, after I got over myself, of being like, okay, we have a meeting, we have an agenda, let's go, let's go, what are we talking about? After I got out of that, I was like, all right, so how are you doing? How was last weekend? You saw the grandkids, how'd that go? Knowing that those relationships and those discussions were important was really cool. So it's, I think researchers can get there, they just have to understand, we've got to understand the value of getting there and how our recruitment will be so much easier because you automatically have built-in ambassadors who can go out into the communities and say, okay, yeah, I'm part of this project and this is what we're doing. And they have credibility. That's what will make the difference. Well, and, and you said something very important. You said, sometimes I have to pull the researchers aside and say, we need to talk. <laughs> and frankly, I, have, I don't think I've been on the receiving end of that yet. Um, I know no, you haven't. It's when you get it's when you get quiet that I'm going to go. Oh, okay, now, now we're going to sit down for this one. What I do? <laughs> but when you say we need to talk, it's an opportunity mm -hmm. for teaching someone to be culturally humble. Yeah. And to, and yeah. to connect to the to the community in a way that recognizes the community. And I was, I was laughing internally when you said it's the meeting before the meeting, it's a meeting after meeting. It's just like when we go to church, you, you, church is fine, but you, you, it's the coffee afterwards yes. Where, yes. Where, where the decisions are made. <laughs> it is. It's so much fun. And now I feel so bad at our church. We do, you know, with the social distancing and we're all yes. ushered out 
you know, yes. in, in single style mode, six feet or 12 feet apart to get out. And I'm like, but I really need to talk to Sister Thompson because she had that cake recipe yep. she talked about the other day. It's <laughs> so like, yeah, it's, will, it, it's will you come to lunch, Pastor? And it's like, you bet I will. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But it's, I mean, it's those things that we understand. And I, I, the other thing that I appreciate since being an NCW that I think is really cool, I've run into researchers who said, you know, I'm, that's, I'm not your person. For, because I look for researchers that are willing to speak out in the community. And I had a researcher once say, you know, if people want to know the clinical side of it, that's me all day long. I can explain that in plain English. I can do that. But if you want me to talk about screening mechanisms or survivorship, that's not me. I am bench. I am, the, the, I can tell you and show you how the molecules work it. Put me in front of some high school students that want to go into med school and I will have them hooked because this is some cool stuff. Mm -hmm. To be able to recognize your limitations is huge. Sure. It's huge. And that, I appreciate that because that takes some, some humbleness too to say, I can't talk to everybody because that's not how my mind is wired. And not everyone is wired that way. Okay. Um, and that's okay because we need those people that are just going to be in the labs working like crazy. But I also need those that feel comfortable being in community settings um, to be able to come out to the community and talk about what's going on in the lab. Um, it's not a deficit at all. It's, it's something, I mean, it's cool to say, I don't know how to do that. And, and I don't know if I can do that. Then it's like, no, I need you to publish some more. <laughs> I, need you to get, I need you to get the cure done and then be able to later maybe come to a science class and explain this to some, to some med students or explain this to some you know, some kids that are thinking about coming to the master's and PH program here. I need you for that. Um, I may not need you to speak to the church group or the deacon board. That's okay. I got some folks for that. I need you to stay, do your stuff in the lab, and I'll pull you and pull on you when, I, or even for, be a resource for me. There's stuff that comes out and I read like crazy. I may not understand. There are certain researchers that I can immediately pick up the phone and go, okay, what is this and what does this mean? How does this translate to either identifying cancer early or improving cancer treatments and they will explain that to me they love doing that and that's 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 an important resource and I, I, you know i am fine with that as long as that there are people to translate that uh, and to to be able to talk into that and i was i love this this quote from thomas concannon who was um at one of the think tanks and he said Community will only care about your material if it's one transparent and two it's relevant. Yeah. And so somebody yeah. has to make it transparent and somebody has to make it relevant. To do a molecule for the sake of doing a molecule, eh, maybe it needs to be yeah. done, but there has to be a translation of it. Right. You have to show me down the line how that's going to impact me. Correct. Make it whenever yeah. I ask that to students, they look at me like, well, why would I do that? because we want to make the, this thing that you're doing relevant to the community. Yeah. So let me ask you about this. this is, I love this. Oh, wait, maybe we'll get to a question or two. Um, <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> tell me what you're seeing in the black and brown community around cancer these days. And specifically, I wanna talk about, because one of our sponsors is CDC and we're, we're working on uh, solutions for type two diabetes and hypertension. 
which runs with people who have cancer as well. Tell me what you're seeing in the, in the black and brown community around cancer and chronic diseases like diabetes and hypertension. Well, we know there's a direct correlation. So as we get more aware of things to prevent uh, diabetes or to identify diabetes early, hypertension, um, we, people are learning more and more about how to take control of their health and understanding the need for a primary care provider. I can tell you um, many moons ago when I first started working in healthcare in Milwaukee, having a primary care provider was just not it. People use the emergency room as their primary care provider for everything. And now we've gotten into models of care that really promote having that medical home. We have valuable partners with our FQHCs who are doing an incredible job in trying to get um, prevention all the way around uh, models into the community. So I think that within the black and brown community, what I'm finding just before COVID hit, we were becoming a lot more aware of the importance of going to the doctor on a regular basis, the importance of prevention, preventative care, and then COVID hit. And there is a fear of going to the doctor's office. There's, you know, fear of just um, doing some of the basic prevention. Uh, there's, there's now steps you have to do um, before you can go get, uh, like, for example, colonoscopy. You need to get tested for, for COVID first. Um, and so there's things, regular, the regular prep has now added a step. And that has been somewhat of a barrier for individuals, and especially in um, the Latinx community with immigration issues and political um, issues being what they are right now, there are fears. And I think that there, we've taken a couple steps back um, in that there's, again, a fear of the medical community because there's not, we don't know for sure when COVID comes, COVID has highlighted times 20 what it has been going on within the black and brown mm -hmm. communities for eons. But I think now because um, we've, there's been a move for hurry up and find uh, a cure or a vaccine for COVID, it's, there's a feeling, and I've talked to people that have said, well, they're now step, they're skipping steps. They're, they're being pushed. It's more politics. It's not necessarily trying to do the best for humankind. We've moved away from that. But then the good things, which are interesting, but you know, also can be difficult to see, we've had two companies that have halted trials because of, of complications with vaccines. So the trust is coming back again. Mm -hmm. I think when we look at understanding prevention and screening, uh, under, there's been a really big push that has been re received really well in the black and brown communities around self-control and things that you can do yourself to help improve your health. Exercising, um, eating right, uh, Doing, doing family nutrition, paying attention more to what children are eating, that shift has taken place. And unfortunately, because of everything that has been compounded with COVID, including um, unemployment, uh, uh, homelessness increase, um, food insecurity being pushed up and above, that has kind of taken us a couple steps back. So I think after this season of COVID, and I do believe there's an afterwards, I believe that there's an afterwards that gives us to a new normal, if you will, um, 
that there will be, we'll get back on that same track. But I think that people have a better understanding of how they play a role in their own health and that they can control um, what happens to them within their healthcare setting. So I think that control has really moved us to more of a preventative mode, which has been a big plus in our community. You, you know, I hope you're right in this space, but I want to ask you, Deborah, what gives you indication that that's the case? I will tell you, before leaving ACS, I was part of a project um, around food insecurity. And we worked with um, the House of Peace with their food pantry and with Chef Marvin from the American Heart Association. And we taught um, healthy eating, active living activities with a group of individuals who lived in that neighborhood and also frequented that pantry. And this was just a sign to me, um, just when we would ask questions about food insecurity or teach about, te about eating something new. Um, for example, Chef Marvin did this dish with sweet potatoes and kale as a breakfast food. I love Chef Marvin. I love Chef I love Marvin. Him. <laughs> I love him. And he used turkey sausage um, as uh, turkey kielbasa, rather, as a breakfast meal. And everybody that got the recipe went home and tried it. Um, and these are individuals who never normally wouldn't, I, I don't, they wouldn't have normally eaten kale. They didn't even know what kale was. They were like, I've heard of it, but I've never ate it. I've never tasted it. Um, there was a desire to learn something new. And then when we talked about health, they then asked questions about, so I don't have a doctor. I haven't been to a doctor in a while. How do I get to see a doctor? What do I need to do? And when we were able to link them into a primary care provider through an FQHC, it really, it made a difference. They felt like they had more control. They then had someone from a medical community that they could talk about their health uh, and, and their fears around healthcare. I believe, I, I believe strongly in that, you know, I think that we've given, given if we give the community a fishing pole, <laughs> they'll fish all the time. I think that it's a matter of making sure, finding out what the desire is. One of the things we also came out with, which was hilarious to us, um, they wanted to do box gardens. They were like, I just need a little box of some good soil and I can grow some tomatoes. And I was like, seriously, that's, all, that's like maybe $20 of an expense that I can do to get you a garden started. And then I can link you with somebody who could actually build you a raised garden and bring in some good soil. And they were like, yeah, I want to do that. They, individuals wanted to be able to grow their own and do their own. I think there's a desire. I think that there's two things going on. If there's a perception that there is not a desire within the community to have a difference or have a say in healthcare. And I believe from the community perspective, there's a lack of trust and also that there is a lack of individuals asking them, asking community members, what do you need? When we sat in that space and said, what would help you eat kale? And they were like, if we could buy it. So here's some, we know the farmer's market will have it next Saturday. Here's some vouchers. Go buy some kale and sweet potatoes. Okay, we got that. There is the racist comment that says they're lazy. Yeah. They don't care. Oh, gosh, I and I keep, I want to go back to this precious woman that you spoke of earlier. Don't you dare say that a woman 
making eight, nine dollars an hour because they disinvested the education she couldn't or she couldn't go to college and has children. Don't you dare say that she's lazy when she brings her children to her shift at Burger King and sets her children up for their work day. Don't you dare say that. That's resourceful. Do you understand the resourcefulness? When the rest of us would kind of say, resilience. The resilience and resourcefulness of this young woman, 20 years old, young woman, do you know what could happen if all of that, if, if the playing field was even and she, I mean, if injustices were removed, what she could do with her resourcefulness. I mean, that's the thing I just, I, when people say people are lazy, I'm like, you haven't talked to anyone, have you? You don't, you don't see what people are doing in this age of COVID. You have been in a bubble. You need to talk and, to and people. We need, yeah, we, and we need to say, and do you know how racist you really are? Uh, yeah. I, you know what? I am a white man, and I will acknowledge my times that I got a long way to go. <laughs> but I know it when I see it because I, I have my black brothers and sisters that have pointed it out to me. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's incredible when you look at the resilience of our communities, despite everything that has been stacked against them. It gives me encouragement. And I want to ask you then, so how then? You said the word equity, or if you didn't, it was in my mind. Uh, and, and so how do we build equity? And I want to ask about this because I was in a meeting yesterday with the team mm-hmm. around this grant that's paying for these podcasts. How do we get more information into the hands that people that makes it a bit more equitable in the nation of knowing their blood pressure numbers? and knowing their hemoglobin A1Cs for the diabetes and hypertension. How do we do that? I think you have to ask first, do you understand, is there, is there, have you heard of um, high blood pressure? And nine times out of 10, especially if you're speaking to black or brown or diabetes, if you speak to black or brown communities, yeah, my aunt had it, my mom has it, I have it. There's a family history. Mm-hmm. And acknowledging that family history and what that means for you and your children. You have to, to me, I always think about it as as a black mom of of a blended family of six. I always think about, okay, how is this going to impact my kids Mm. and whatever I need to do to show them a good example. Mm. So if you tell me knowing my A1C numbers, I can be, I can, I can adjust this so that I can change my health. I can change my health outcome, that I can control my blood pressure. I can control my diabetes, my propensity towards diabetes. That you could show me how to do that, just by, not by introducing anything, not by introducing quinoa and kale and all that, but just by changing the basic things that you do on a daily basis. That makes a difference. I will tell you, I, my father, when he, he had um, heart disease. And after he had um, surgery, valve surgery one time, he had to walk. And we didn't want him going outside. But the doctor said, if you just walk these many steps a day, it'll make a difference. So my dad and I counted out walking from the kitchen all the way through the living room and lapping it, how many steps that was. And he figured it out. He was like, so all I really need to walk is 30 minutes. 
in the morning, 30 minutes at night. And I was like, yeah, just do that for 30 minutes. You can listen to jazz. You can listen to the television. I just need you to do that. That helped his health outcome. He didn't have to go outside. We didn't have to buy any special equipment. But just knowing that helped his health, health outcome. I have a brother, um, my biological brother, who uh, had, was pre-diabetic and had hypertension like crazy. Um, he real, his doctor asked him how much water he drank a day. And he said, well, I drink about a case of orange soda every two days. And the doctor was like, okay, so this is what we're going to do. My, my brother cut out soda completely from his diet. He lost so much weight and diabetes is no longer anywhere in his health, health, um, in, in what his current health status is. He took control of it. But when the doctor says, so what are you doing? So what, what, what's going on? But I think understanding that health history first is so critical. You've got to know your health history in order to be able to have that conversation. If I understand my health history, then you can say, okay, so tell me what you made for breakfast for the kids this morning. Oh, they have fruit loops and apple juice. Okay, so what did you eat? Well, I really didn't eat anything. Well, did you eat lunch? No, I just grabbed some crackers or cookies. So what are you going to eat for dinner? We'll probably take out. Okay, let me tell you everything that you did today. Everything. I know. (laughs) What are you going to eat for dinner? Everything. (laughs) Everything, because I'm starving, because I haven't eaten all day. But it's like, if you can just, if you have that conversation, it's that relationship. Having that conversation to say, what are you currently doing, and do you know what your numbers are? If you don't know what your numbers are, then let's get a baseline of where you are now, and then go from there. That helps. And I've heard this in the past, and I think it's for I think it's for white communities as well. But we I want to focus on the black and brown communities because that is our line in the sand. I'm hanging on to that one. I'm taking that one from you. Line in the sand. <laughs> our line in the sand is, and I've heard this because I've worked with enough women in the space, black and brown women, especially mm-hmm. single head of household women, where there might be multiple generations. And we say, what do you, what do you, what do you see for the future? And they say, I'm responsible for my family. Yeah, yeah. And and so we need to tap into that resiliency to say, I love you. I want you to be your best self. We need Mm -hmm. you in the fight. Yeah. (laughs) We need you in the game, sister. Here's what you need to know what your numbers are. And, And I think people go, I got it. Yeah. Yeah. Now, it's weird. Often asking those moms, what happens? I'm sorry, but what, what happens if something happens to you? What happens to your family? Yeah. And as I was a single mom at one point, and I would tell you, I was like, I have no game plan. So, yeah, I need to go get my exams. I need to go ahead and get this done. I need, because nine times out of 10, the kids have all of their exams. They're up to date on vision, dental, latest big shots, everything. Mom, yeah, I can wait. I can wait. But yeah, or they don't want to. Or, or they don't want to know because they might no. have something, and, and then it's then it's too late. I'll, I'll tell you this though, because this is the one of the things that I think you'll agree with me. Uh, we did a uh, a little study in high school physical education, and the number one reason for people not participating in physical education, which is a great form of prevention, was one, they didn't have the clothes, 
And two, there were several occasions where if I get the clothes dirty, I got to wash them. And then it's money we don't have. Yeah. So when we're talking about social determinants, like stable places to live that are lead free, mold free, vermin free, that uh, they don't have to pay 70 to 80% of their income for rent, having enough food in the household and so on. Then we can start talking about this, these ideas of, and we need you to know this because mm-hmm. we're still dealing with inequities in our housing, in our income, in our wealth, in our black and brown communities. Right. 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 Deborah, you are a joy. I just adore you. I got to say you- that. I'll just say that to you. Can you share with us, this is about wellness. Can you share with me and our audience some of your wellness practices, some of your rhythms that you do? And I'll frame it this way because we're in COVID. I think we've all gained a little bit of weight in COVID. Um, yeah, what are yeah. some of the things that you do and some of the things that you, you, uh, you, have a, you ascribe, you want to do more of in the future that you think we all should do? I definitely, so I do have, I don't have any samples around here. I crochet, um, and that kind of keeps my mental health <laughs> in line. Okay. I, as I mentioned, I have I have a total a blended family of six, two girls, four boys, all grown, um, and they are also my comic relief, um, as a long, as as well as stressors at times. But they are my comic relief. I have an incredible husband who is so understanding, and also a huge source of comic relief for me. Um, I do try to exercise. Um, I have a, a stair stepper that I don't get on enough. So I wish I was more um, committed to my exercise regimen. Put that. I do do yoga. I do. I love yoga. Um, I have a studio that I, I'm connected to that I do that virtually. Uh, and I do love yoga. Um, it's the yin yoga, which does not take a lot of stress. It's not a lot of downward dog and crazy stuff. It's a lot of floor and stretching and breathing. Um, that has been one of my biggest things right now. I've tried to get my energy in, in line and I'm focusing on my breathing and my good, having my good people around me. Um, and that's been a big plus, but it's, I, I do, I would say, I, my husband would tell you by the skeins of yarn that are randomly throughout the house that crocheting has been one of my biggest things that he laughs all the time. He's like, oh, there's a yarn cell. I know we need some, don't we? So it's like everyone gets a blanket. David, you have a scarf coming, possibly a blanket. <laughs> you know, my, my Karen, my Karen uh, crochets and even if she's got a she's got a bin of it in the basement, she'll still need more. <laughs> that you have to, you never know. I, there might you never will. There, there there might be a shortage one day. <laughs> they might but run I will out. Tell you that they might run out. I will tell you the other thing that is so critical to me is I also teach part time at Concordia University, and my students are are my forever hope. Um, I, I love facilitating their learning. I never say that I actually teach. I actually facilitate their learning because I, I ask them more questions than they ask me. I throw things back at them all the time and they're like, you're going to make us work tonight, aren't you? And I was like, oh yeah, we're about to work. Even through Zoom, I'm about to ask you guys some stuff. going to be um, exhausted. 
you're going to be exhausted. Bring but your they, I mean, I'm, I, I tell them they're my hope. I mean, I, I love their how inquisitive they are, how innovative they are, um, how tech savvy they are, how they laugh at me because I'm not tech savvy. Um, but that is they. That is one of my. I love facilitating learning because for me it's growth because I learn from when they learn. Um, but it's also good to see other minds kind of expanding. And uh, I told my dean this a couple of times. I was like, I live for that aha moment when someone suddenly looks at something and goes, wait, 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 did you mean, okay, so what you meant was, wow, that's cool. That to me is my everything. That is, it's kind of like when, when I'm with my grandsons and they figure out how to spell their name. It's like, oh, I, I can go to bed now. <laughs> you know, good. We are both of a certain age. And when I hear a young person say that's cool, and I, have, I do some mentoring <laughs> with some high school students, it's like, I have arrived. <laughs> I have arrived. <laughs> it's so true. It's Deborah, so, so anything true. else that you want to share with the audience this time? I just want to say one of the key things that we have to do is take care of ourselves. Um, everyone contributes to this big, beautiful world and never feel that you are not enough. Never feel that you are alone and never feel that you haven't made a difference. You waking up this morning made a difference to someone uh, and that whatever contribution you make today is gonna to have a lasting contribution and impact on our world. And that means a lot to all of us. That is a beautiful thing and a wonderful place to end. I wanna ask you one more question. Will you come back again? Yeah. I would love to. Will you come I would love back David, again? You know I would never say no to you, yes. Oh man, <laughs> I just, I, I can't say it enough. I just adore you and I adore what you stand for. And, and we are like brothers and sisters because we are in this together. <laughs> Until they're until we're no longer needed, and then yeah. um, we'll figure it out from there. But I gotta say, yeah. uh, you are your you are Miss Evelyn's daughter, and I know all your <laughs> students want to have lunch with you now. And you are your father's daughter because you have a sense of humor, and I'm so glad that you are supporting the health of the community with the work you do. Deborah Nevels, thank you for coming on the Days of Learning podcast. This was a joy. It was a joy. Thank you so much. I'm so honored. What a wonderful interview that was. I am so thrilled to get to hang out with Deborah Nevels and hear about some of the work that she's doing in cancer and cancer research. But you know, I really want to come back to a couple of things that she said. She not only talked about the issue of determinants, but she said, why are there determinants? She mentioned injustice, she mentioned classes, and she talked about the line in the sand. And she talked about the family, the mother who brings her children to work so they can do their schoolwork. How in a world where we talk about health and responsibility, can we expect someone to have the best health they can if they can't get internet for their kids or make a wage that would make housing affordable and include healthcare? I don't know. But I think 
what she was saying is people are resilient. People want information. And the more information we give them and a reason why they're getting that information, receiving that information, the more that they can work with it. It has been a joy to have this interview today, and I hope you've enjoyed it. If you want to hear more like this, drop us a note, subscribe to the podcast. But till next time, I'm your host, David Nelson, and this is Days of Learning Podcast. Be well and be blessed.